I love starting my day out with a beautiful smoothie that's packed with superfoods to fuel both body and mind. Knowing how to pair fruits and vegetables is one thing, and adding in superfood powders that sound and taste so mysterious is a whole other challenge. Take the guesswork and time-consuming trial and error out of your shopping and your blending. Now you can get all of your superfoods super fast with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest sends superfood eats straight to your door with your choice of smoothies, activated breakfast bowls, and even nice cream, vegan sundaes. The produce is all organic and unrefined, and it looks as amazing as it tastes. You can actually see the whole ingredients when you open up the cup. Daily Harvest works closely with local farmers all across the U.S. and freezes ingredients at peak freshness to seal in their maximum nutritional value, unlike other fruits and veggies which are picked and packaged long before their nutritional peak. Every single serving cup comes ready to blend or heat and can be stored in the freezer ready whenever you are. Enjoying your cup of Daily Harvest is so easy. Just add water or maybe coconut or almond milk if you're feeling fancy and blend or heat. In just 30 seconds, you have an insanely delicious and nutritious meal so you can eat right, right now. Go to daily-harvest.com and enter promo code YOGAGIRL to get three items free from your first box. That's promo code YOGAGIRL for three Daily Harvest cups at daily-harvest.com. daily-harvest.com. Hi, and welcome to another episode of From the Heart Conversations with Yoga Girl. Today, I have a very special guest on the show that I'm super excited to introduce to you all, Tortis Elva. Tordis is a writer, journalist, speaker, and a goddess of a woman who was voted Woman of the Year in Iceland in 2015 for her work in support of women's rights and equality. She caught worldwide attention this spring when, years after suffering through rape, wrote a book and did a TED Talk together with her perpetrator, a talk that went absolutely viral. I'm so excited to have her here. I have goosebumps all over. Welcome to the show, Tordis. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here. How do you feel to be on the show? I'm very excited. I'm also feeling very blessed to be sitting in this uh, ever so cozy little apartment and uh, breathing in the holy basil that is like this beautiful <laughs> candle sitting in front of me. So so definitely good to be here. We do all our, I, I know my listeners know already, but when we're in Sweden, I do all my podcasts in what we call the tiny apartment, our 32 square meter. I can tiny attest space. that it's tiny, <laughs> but it's also very cozy and warm. Oh, it is, it is. I'm so happy to be, I feel like I'm just getting to know you, which is, which is amazing. I've been, you know, following you from afar and, uh, you just spoke and participated in our 109 women's retreat in Erland. Which was such an honor. Um, I'd never been a part of anything like it. I usually speak in professional settings. I speak to policemen or psychologists or, or women's rights groups, people that are involved with my cause and what I stand for. Um, but I'd never been to a group of of yoga-loving, free-spirited people uh, gathered in a beautiful mm -hmm. island to just um, unfold our hearts for each other for, what was it, four full days? Yes. It was quite amazing. It's very different. And I got to meet the tongue-kissing dog as well. <laughs> Ringo, the, the dog who kisses everyone in their down dogs. <laughs> yes, and like prefers to actually stick his tongue like inside people's mouths. That yeah. was, Not that everybody was loves that. So. <laughs> right. Thanks for being so relaxed about ah. that. 
Yeah, but for anybody listening, so we had a, a mission trip, so one of our 109 mission trips, and it took place in Sweden. And um, the purpose, or the original purpose, I feel, because I feel like it shifted a lot throughout the week, was to raise awareness and funds for the Pansy Hospital in Congo. In um, Congo, rape and sexual abuse is actually used as a kind of legitimate, legitimized weapon of war. And uh, all the funds that we were able to raise through the trip and uh, went to support this hospital where they support survivors of rape. So I feel like we all kind of, we gathered, we were 31 participants and then uh, we had speakers and then the team. So I think we were 35 or so in the group total. Uh, I feel like we, we gathered to support, with this idea to support women in the land far away. That was Kind of, that was also the, the gist I was getting from the participants and how I felt. We were supporting this hospital in Congo. They do amazing work, women's rights, survivors of sexual abuse. This is huge. And then the moment we sat in the first circle together, it just it was very clear that this is close to home. This is not a faraway problem. At all. Mm -mm. And I think in a way I kind of... Maybe I was trying to make it easier for myself, thinking that okay, we're we're you know it, it is a faraway thing. It's not something that everybody deals with on a day to day. But the moment I sat down in the first circle myself, I realized, wait, this is a number one. This is a problem that I don't like to look at. Like mm -hmm. I've kept myself at a comfortable distance from it, even though it is extremely close to home for me as well, and for women in my family, my friends, um, and. Every, I think almost every single person in the group, if they didn't hadn't had an experience themselves with as a survivor of rape or, or abuse, um, they had an extremely close person in their family or, or mm -hmm. friends that that were. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't a faraway thing that we were trying to fix with some yoga and raising some money. It was healing needed to be done right here, right now. Mm, absolutely, which has been basically the focus of my career for the past decade, and actually. I think what you're describing is very common. We tend to think of um, problems like this that are so harrowing. Um, we tend to compartmentalize them and often shove them under the carpet or pretend that they don't happen like on our doorstep. And I remember the outrage that the world went through in 2012 with the Delhi gang rape. And I remember like seeing people around me uh, basically saying, well, you know, after all, it's an underdeveloped, faraway country, which I think is A, very unfair description of India, and B, such a blatant denial of the fact that sexual violence is a pandemic that happens in every country on the face of the planet. For and anyone as you, who doesn't know about the Delhi Delhi, Right, group. right, exactly. Well, uh, a 23-year-old physiotherapy student boarded a bus in New Delhi in India in 2012 after catching a movie with her friend. And um, unfortunately, the bus had been rented out to six men that then took turns um, sexually assaulting her and beating up her friend and then basically maiming her so terribly that it um, tore her intestine and then threw her out of the moving bus. And this is probably a time where um, it's good to issue some sort of a trigger warning. I know that what I just said uh, was very graphic, but for those who are listening and felt disturbed by that, um, well, I, I guess I apologize, but I also want to say that this will be a, a conversation there might be more, yeah. where we will probably get really down to the nitty and gritty of, um, of this, unfortunately, yeah, globally pressing that Also, problem. as I share the, the podcast, but... When you were speaking at the 
at the retreat, everything we, every workshop, every speaker that we had, um, I found myself trying to tune out at mm. moments and then catch myself again. Okay, wait, if this is really hard for me to hear, I probably need to hear it. <laughs> There's a reason I want to shy away and kind of pretend that this isn't a real situation and kind of go about life. But right. it's an important conversation to have to the extent that we can sit and take it in. But I also think that perhaps that feeling that you're describing is a product of us hearing about the problem, but very rarely being offered solutions and being offered tools. And this notion that even I can make a difference, I can change the world, I can be a part of the solution mm -hmm. to this problem. And there are frankly so many things that we could all be doing that um, I think would make us like straighten our backs and, you know, just light a sparkle of hope in our hearts and make this whole subject more approachable um, and basically easier to take on. But when you don't have hope and when you feel like it's just a massive problem and I don't know how I could possibly do anything to change it, that is where you get into a very disempowered state. And of course, nobody wants to be in that state. So whenever I discuss these matters, I always try to um, layer it with solutions and with positive thinking, because if there's anything I do have, it's tremendous hope for the future. And I've seen incredible things and changes happening just in the few years that I've been working with these issues. I can see it in your eyes. They sparkle. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. That's a good, it's a good note to, to begin. I feel there's definitely hope. And I hope throughout this, just us sitting here having this conversation on this podcast, I think is a, uh, is doing something. Yes. And it's a healing, healing thing to happen. So how about if we, if we rewind a little bit? So for any listeners that are new to you, um, how did you, because your, your purpose in life, <laughs> I feel you're a, I look at you, I see sort of a, a Joan of Arc almost. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I really, oh, I, I, I see, I see you as this crusader kind of holding up this bright light of, of making a change in the world when it comes to how we view the issue of, of rape, how, um, in so many other cases, the blame is put on the survivor instead of on the perpetrator and how you're changing the conversation on it right? by being really an example. How did you, how did you start down on this path? How did I become how Joan did of Arc? How did you become Joan yes. of Arc? <laughs> well, that's a very flattering um, analogy. Thank you. But I can't say that it was a, a choice that I made willingly. I think that most of us that are vocal in this field are doing it out of a necessity or a calling um, that's often born out of pain. And for me, um, it all began 21 years ago uh, in 1996 when I fell in love for the first time. And I'm from Iceland, so this all took place in an Icelandic high school where this young Australian exchange student showed up one day and charmed me with his like exotic accent and worldly ways. And um, before long, we were dating, and it was a beautiful, budding teenage relationship. Nothing out of the ordinary, I think. Um, you know, the kind of like standard awkwardness that comes with like being a teenager in love, like meeting during lunch break, gazing deeply into each other's eyes and holding hands. How old were you then? 16. 16. Um, definitely my first love. And then he met my parents, and that was super awkward, but like necessary and beautiful. And everything felt mutual and consensual and romantic uh, until there was a Christmas dance at our school. And I felt it was time for me to take yet another step into like this world of adults because 
I mean, look at me. I was like this young woman who had a boyfriend who was like taking her to the dance. So it felt only appropriate to also try rum for the first time that night. Um, that backfired on me uh, very disturbingly to the point where I became extremely ill. I spent the night, as opposed to being dancing with my boyfriend and having fun at this first dance, I spent it basically vomiting um, compulsively in the bathrooms and sort of drifting in and out of consciousness, thinking to myself, man, this is quite the predicament I've gotten myself into and I'm going to be grounded for life and just going through scenarios in my head, but completely unable to say a word or like move a limb. I was just incapacitated. I very likely had alcohol poisoning, although that will probably never be confirmed. And this is when my boyfriend shine, um, shows up like this knight in shining armor to scale the bathroom door and, and pick me up from the floor. And I just remember feeling so grateful and relieved that he was there to kind of like save me from this situation. Um, and he did. I mean, he scooped me up and he like walked out of the building. He was stopped on the way by a security guard that said, um, we should probably call an ambulance because she's really sick. And him saying, no, it's okay. I know her. I'll take care of her. It's, it's quite all right. And them letting him go. And I'm, I'm still like so frustrated not being able to partake in this conversation and not being able to thank him for, for taking such good care of me. But all of those feelings of like relief and gratitude um, took a very sharp kind of turn when we got home because that's when he decided to lay me in bed and undress me completely and get on top of me and have his way with me. And the way I was positioned, my head was turned toward the alarm clock. So for the next two hours while he was raping me, all I had basically to do for the duration of that to stay sane and kind of disconnect from what was happening to my body and the physical pain that I was undergoing was to count the seconds on the alarm clock. Um, and it amounted to 7,200 seconds, which I've been aware ever since that night is the amount of two hours, basically. And that's when he rolled off me, got up, called himself a taxi and left. And um, our relationship did not survive the events of that night, needless to say. So we basically went our separate ways and uh, did not discuss the dark deed that had preceded our breakup. How was the next, you know, the next morning or the next time you had a... Right. Because you met again after this. We did. Um, well, it was a very, very deep confusion for me because obviously... Um, I felt very betrayed and used, and yet I could not make this fit with the stereotypical notion that I had about sexual violence at the time. Um, I don't know, for me, like, a rapist was someone that you saw in, like, you know, CSI or Law and Order. Like, I was, you know, this masked armed lunatic that was, like, lurking behind a bush or, like, in a parking lot or something and would jump at you. Um, it was never your articulate, funny boyfriend who was polite to your mom. You know, it was never that guy. And it, like, happened in seedy places, but never in your bedroom, you know? So, for me, this just could... I did not 
make it um, make any sense in my mind. It didn't compute, basically, that this could have been what it was, a rape, a two-hour long rape, basically. So I had the pain, but I didn't know where it stemmed from. And I had the rage that comes from being really deeply wounded um, by someone you trusted, but I didn't know whom to direct it at. So basically, I, I went through a very painful um, period of denial and confusion until I was able to sort of dismantle this whole myth about the monster that lurks in the bushes, which I like to refer to as the monster myth. But by the time that I had put the pieces together uh, and realized that, yes, I was a victim of rape, and yes, it has, this had happened to me, um, by that time, Tom's exchange program, and I don't know if I've mentioned his name up until mm. now, but, but Tom was his name, Tom Stranger. His exchange program had completed, been completed. So he had moved back to Australia, which is literally on the other side of the planet from Iceland. So I thought, you know, it's been a long time. My wounds have healed. I'm no witnesses. And the because you had physical wounds. Oh, yes, yes. I definitely had those. And now the perpetrator is um, living on the other side of the planet, can't be called in for questioning. So I did not think to myself that seeking out a legal course of action would have been a fruitful experience for me. So I did what so many women before me and so many women unfortunately still do. I tried to move on. I tried to shrug it off and carry on with my life. Did you tell anyone? I did not. Um, I was, and this is how we're all products of our time, but we grow up in a society that sort of conditions us to believe that if we just behave right, if we just dress right, if we just um, go to certain places at certain hours of the day and avoid them at other times, then we can avoid being assaulted altogether. And this is so efficient. I mean, it starts when we're so young, um, this notion that our skirts can't be too short and we can't flirt with boys and we can't be out after dark and we can't accept a drink from someone we don't know and we can't get in a car and, you know, with someone that we don't fully know and we can't go on a date without letting someone know when we're coming back, etc. I mean, the list is endless of all these safety precautions that we're supposed to um, use and, and incorporate into our lives. And had your parents given them to you since you were... Yes, of course. And it's a very loving gesture mm -hmm. to do, but I think that it also creates this culture of victim blaming because then when someone is assaulted, the stream of questions is basically based on that same list, like what were you wearing? Where did you go? Why did you make that choice? Uh, you knew that was potentially dangerous. Why did and you I, drink? Why did you do this? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And it creates this false sense of security because um, usually those that assault us, all statistics point to the same fact. They're usually someone that we know and trust, someone that's not lurking in an alleyway, someone that is uh, invited into our bedroom, someone that we are possibly already intimate with, like a boyfriend or even a spouse, like those Can are very common scenarios. you offer some statistics scenarios. on this? Do you? Yeah, uh, more than 70% of rapes in our part of the world, in the Western world, are committed by someone that's very close to um, 
the survivor. Mm. So we're talking about uh, friends, spouses, boyfriends, coworkers. And I realize that my language is very gendered, but of course it can also happen to men. And um, how, how, how many instances is that? Or the, the percentage well, is that not that percentage less. varies a bit, but um, it's safe to say that statistically the perpetrators are around 98% men, mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not the survivor is male or female. Right. So basically the person that carries out sexual assault uh, is male, whether or not the survivor is, mm-hmm. is male or female. Um, so, so it's safe to say it's pretty much, uh, most perpetrators definitely are male. Yes, but of course yes. there are some female perpetrators, but they're definitely not um, your standard, mm-hmm. or, and I say that with air quotations, right. like your, your stereotypical perpetrator. And 70% someone that we know, so then that's right. lurking person, because I, I was told this also, of course, I mean, I think most, most girls absolutely mm-hmm. are. I wasn't allowed to, when I was a teenager, I couldn't wear a shirt if it was, uh, it was not allowed to be higher than my belly button. I wasn't allowed to show my belly button. That was like the the line of them, then my shirt was too short. I wasn't allowed to wear uh, hoop earrings because I think, I don't know if they were utmanan, um, they would say in Swedish, like uh, provocative. provocative. Right. Um, no short skirts. If I was going home from the bus at night because I was allowed to take the, the last bus out to the island where we lived outside of Stockholm, I had to have uh, my phone in my hand with kind of the 112, which is the 911 mm-hmm. of Sweden, um, already dialed in, even though we live in this kind of really, lived in this really safe place. I mean, the list was endless. If I was out, always cover my drink or if I had, you know, anything in my hand to put my thumb over it so no one could slip in uh, Mm -hmm. uh, drugs. I mean, the list was really, uh, and I haven't thought about that until you raised this Mm -hmm. uh, in in your talk during the trip this this past week that, wow, yeah, my list of ticking things off as a young girl, things my brother never had to do ever. Exactly. And then you ask guys, what are your safety precautions when you're, you know, just moving out and about like minding your business, whether it's daytime or nighttime. And it's actually not that much. Like most, yeah. most guys really haven't even thought about it, that they have to like, um, make any precautions regarding their own personal safety. And it's just so unfair that, um, being a woman means that you have to be afraid in certain situations or not even in certain situations, just have your guard up all the time. All the time. That is very energy consuming. Mm. And it, makes me understand why women have so many more um, stress-related ailments um, and why women in the Western world are suffering much more from things like muscle tension and fatigue and headaches because it's it's goddamn tiring, exhausting. I mean, to, we're told from a young age that it's not safe to be a woman. Exactly. At least and compared to being a man. Yeah. I would like to change. That That's a gift I would like to give the daughters of the future that Um, They have every right to feel safe and to be safe wherever they are. You are listening to From the Heart, Conversations with Yoga Girl. Are you hiring? Do you manage or own your own company? If you do, you need to know about ZipRecruiter. Posting your job in only one or two places is no longer enough to find quality candidates that your company needs. As a business owner, I know these challenges well. And these days, you need to post your job to all the top job sites. And now with ZipRecruiter, you can. 
ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter does not depend on candidates finding you, but it will find them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. Just post once and watch ZipRecruiter post your job to 100 plus job sites and watch your qualified candidates come your way. Time is precious. As a business owner myself, I know how time needs to be spent growing the success of my business instead of juggling resumes and interviews. Now you can quickly screen and organize your candidates on ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard and hire that perfect person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter is used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash yoga. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash yoga. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash yoga. The world is changing now more than ever. We all need more than one source of income, but not everyone wants to quit their jobs and become a startup founder. That's what Side Hustle School is all about. It's a short daily podcast, seven days a week, that tells stories of ordinary people making extra money without quitting their jobs. The host, Chris Gillabo, also has an intriguing new book out there this month called The Money Tree. It's an engaging story of how you have the power to create your own financial destiny, something that's especially important in this time of uncertainty. Get your copy of The Money Tree today from any bookstore or online retailer. Learn more at moneytreebook.com and listen to Side Hustle School wherever you get your podcasts. But back to the story, um, you asked me if I told anyone, but the fact is I had internalized the victim blaming to the extent that I was convinced this had to have been my fault somehow. Because let's face it, I had a drink and like we'd already been intimate. I was crazy about him. He probably thought that he had a right to do what he did. Um, even though you were pretty much unconscious. <laughs> yeah, even though I was in a very poor state. Um, so these are like some of the ridiculous notions that I use to basically shoulder shoulder the responsibility that never belonged to me. Um, and for nine years, I did my best to outrun my past. Um, and it was a very taxing exercise. I mean... It led me to never stand still because in moments of stillness, I found myself back to counting seconds. It became this nervous habit, something that started as a lifeline, uh, ended up consuming the inner stillness that I had, which I think is a very sacred place. It's a place that every human being has to be able to tap into and revisit. It's the place where we process. It's the place where we grow. You know, it's, it's the home to our souls, mm. basically. But I effectively robbed myself of that place by always filling my, my silence because I was so afraid of the story it would tell if I stopped. Um, so it took a lot of numbing. I numbed myself with, sometimes with alcohol, sometimes with uh, self-harm of various kinds, sometimes with eating disorders, which was a desperate attempt to regain control, I guess. Because when you're assaulted, uh, someone is robbing you of control for the duration of it. And eating disorders are a way to try and regain control of some aspect of your life, even if it's just the amount of calories that you put in your body. So, um, and on top of all of this, I became a very effective overachiever, um, never stopping 
because again, that invited too much self-reflection. So 24 seven, I was at it and I was actually pretty good at it. <laughs> I, um, you know, I became a student council member. I, um, was an outstanding student. I, um, won poetry competitions. I, uh, I was on the team for like our aerobics, um, league. I mean, it was just, the list was endless, but that again, even though many of these activities were deeply pleasurable and, and gained me some friends for life, um, they were often a mask, something that I put on to hide my pain. But nine years after this, I was basically spiraling downward very fast. Everything was deteriorating for me because, um, the running had come to a point where it was causing tension in all my relationships. Yeah. How um, were your, did you have any romantic relationships after? I did. I did. And, um, I don't know about other people that have, have been through this, but I think if you go through a trauma and you don't process it and you shut up about it and you seal yourself off, um, I th think that it's a very normal a uh, common human reaction to feel like a misfit because you're carrying around this, this big, ugly secret. And so being around people that seemingly are not dealing with, with uh, skeletons in their closet, that seemingly have it all hashed out, you start feeling acutely lonely in those situations and like you don't belong. So I started to actively sort of seek out other misfits because those were the only company that where I felt um, normal to some extent. But you still didn't share this I did not. Story. But the misfits that I ended up seeking out turned out to be misfits for various reasons, like um, dealing with, with some very disturbing issues or, or um, having mental illness or addictions or um, basically not very good company. Uh, and I ended up actually in a cycle where I was repeatedly re-traumatized and unfortunately assaulted more than once. And, um, so my mind, I guess, subconsciously realized that I had to, I had to go back to the source. I had to start my healing work from where it all began. You know, we've been pondering this a little bit in, or in, in my teaching, this has, has come up a couple of times where, if you go through intense trauma uh, and you find yourself, you know, sort of a victim of abuse again and again and again, um, looking at it from the other way, what if it's the universe trying to provide you with the same or a similar type situation for you to find the tools to change it? Mm -hmm. I like that, you know, okay, I had this trauma here, this happened to me and oh my God, I'm found my, I, I keep getting... I keep finding myself in the similar type of situation um, in a way of life trying to provide us with yes, this awful thing, it's here, own it or change it, or how can I find the tools to use it to overcome so that I can stop right. this cycle of, um, of being a victim, you know, stepping out of it. Whenever I can, um, I like to attribute responsibility to those who are violent uh, and never, ever shirk away from the fact that that was their choice. And oh, that of course, was, of course. That was... Um, something that they decided to carry out and they have to live with having that on their conscience. But I, I do agree that in the end, what happens to you is perhaps not that 
that makes you, it's what you do with it and how you react right. to not it. Not in any way putting the blame on the, of course not on the, on the survivor, but energetically in as, as in, because I'm sure it, it took a lot for you to arrive at a place where, okay, I need to step into a place of healing now. Exactly. Well, and, you can live in that gray area for a long time where you, you know, without stepping out of it and seeing it for, for what it truly is. I'm carrying this huge backpack of, of yes, stuff. Exactly. For the yeah. nine years, that backpack was like breaking, <laughs> breaking my back, basically. <laughs> but you're very right. I wish I could take credit, though. I wish I could say, yes, I had this like enlightened moment where, you know, I made this like spiritual decision to to step into my own healing and own it for what it is but actually that's not how it happened at all it was a very clumsy I kind of like fell into my <laughs> healing I like crash landed in my healing but um it was one of those days where I'd been having a horrible fight and horrible fights were very common for me at the time because of all this tension and rage and pain that I was bottling up constantly so I had a horrible fight with a loved one and I like stormed out of the door and slammed it behind me and got in the car and I was blinded by tears and I just drove aimlessly somewhere and I thought I just have to sit somewhere down and try and gather myself and um, ended up at a cafe that I don't normally frequent and I thought nobody here is going to know me. Uh, so it's okay with a puffy face and all. So I like go in, I sit down and I ask the waitress for a pen and I was going to doodle in my notebook that I always had with me. Uh, and doodling was also a form of escapism, like never, ever standing still, ever. And that's when, to my surprise, this letter just streamed out of my pen addressed to Tom, which was this searing confrontation of not only what he did to me that night, but what it had cost me for the nine years that had passed. Um, basically laying his responsibility bare. Had he been on your mind? Had that situation Actually, been on your mind? no. Not at all? Not at all. And to be completely honest, like I was not the reconciliatory type at the time. Not at all. Like I had adopted this zero tolerance policy for anyone who abused my trust. And I resorted to such militant measures as like sending shit in a shoebox to a guy that like <laughs> let me down. <laughs> so I was definitely not um, anywhere on this wavelength. And this very much surprised me. And I was super scared. I was terrified thinking, what the hell do I do with this? And um, it took me probably three days to finally make the decision to type it into a computer and send it off to this ancient email address that I didn't have very high hopes um, he would still use. It had been a decade. By right. Now. And yeah. it was Hotmail. Like, who uses Hotmail? I'm yeah. sorry. I'm no sorry, one. Microsoft. <laughs> but like, anyway, um, I, yeah, so that's what I did. But not before having gone through all these scenarios in my head. You know, what's going to happen? Um, is he going to outright deny it? Is he going to call me a liar? Or is he going to Had you journaled it? about it before? Or was this the first no. release onto paper? Of right. No, I had not to my memory done so however I was a budding playwright at the time um, I apparently filled a niche in Icelandic theater as like the voice of a young woman so I was kind of hot stuff at the time my plays were being produced in um, some of the bigger theaters in the country and uh, that was a liberation for someone who could not speak her truth to create these characters that were free to say all the things that I couldn't mm. say myself. Um, 
Was, was I, that a theme that you found in your place? Yes. Mm. Uh, basically, taboos, social taboos, things that we're not discussing enough, things that make our skin crawl, but we need to. We need to talk about them because um, it's the only way to make any progress. But yeah, back to the letter. So I decided all of these scary outcomes uh, were worth the risk because the only outcome that I couldn't live with was silencing this like brave new voice that I didn't think I had. Um, so that's what I did. I sent the letter and much to my surprise, about two days later, I got a response and I was petrified. I just ended up pacing my apartment uh, probably for a good day before clicking it open. And it basically contained the only thing that I had not prepared myself for, which was this hot-blooded confession, um, just filled with, with searing regret, where he said, believe me, I've not forgotten what I did to you and how wary I have to be of myself. And um, I don't think I, I don't think this lifetime offers enough time for me to, to make it up to you or, or tell you how sorry I am or, or how deeply this has rooted itself within my so my he owned it and my being oh he owned it completely to the t without um wavering in any way or or trying to minimize this responsibility and this of course uh threw me into an emotional roller coaster that i i will never be able to put into words it was absolutely crazy a part of me was furious uh, with him for the obvious fact that he had abused me and he knew it and he hadn't approached the subject with me and waited for me to break mm. that silence but a part of me was was also uh deeply touched by how unwaveringly he he owned up to this i, th I don't think humans in many cases are willing to look at their own worst sides or their own worst deeds um had and he it would have been with this also like around that time. Right. It would have been very easy for him to to just ignore my mm -hmm. my email. But it would have been ignoring a part of him that was also leading him on a very dark and downward spiral of a journey. Um and I think that we both are fairly certain that had we not not approached the subject or found a way to bridge it, we would probably not be here anymore. You are listening to From the Heart, Conversations with Yoga Girl. Sleep is everything for my growing baby and for me and my husband. Our little girl's bedding is just as soft and cozy as our own, thanks to Parachute and their new beautiful line of baby bedding. There's nothing more precious than our little girl sleeping soundly, and there's nothing softer than the bedding that she cuddles into. Our dog Ringo, baby's frequent snuggle buddy these days, agrees as well. It's super important to spend my money where I know it can help the world, which is why I love how Parachute creates its products. Parachute's bedding is designed in Venice Beach, California, and responsibly manufactured in Europe by fairly paid employees. The fabrics are 100% natural, made without any use of harmful chemicals or synthetic soft with timeless designs inspired by Venice Beach's natural color palette. 
Parachute also donates thousands of life-saving bed nets to communities in critical need with the United Nations Foundation Nothing But Nets. Go check it out right now. Visit parachutehome.com slash yoga girl for free shipping and returns. If you ever for any reason have to return your bedding, know that Parachute will donate it straight to Habitat for Humanity. So everything is purposeful. Transform your bedroom with Parachute and help others around the world sleep soundly too. Visit parachutehome.com slash yoga girl for free shipping and returns. You have 60 days or should I say 60 nights to fall in love or you can send it right back. No questions asked. Go to parachutehome.com slash yoga girl today. So what happened is I decided to do what every survivor I think harbors and it's to act on this wish of, want, of getting to know why, you know. I think that that's one of the most compelling questions that anyone who's subjected to uh, hurt, especially hurt that cuts this deep, is posing that question. Why? Why did this happen to me? Why did you do this to me? Yeah, not, not why did this happen to me, but why did you do why this? Why did you choose to yes, do this to me? Really, what yeah. in your mind justified? He was also 16. He was 18. He, he was, was 18. two years okay. older than me. Uh, what in your mind justified this? And this launched us on an eight-year-long e email correspondence um, where not only did we analyze uh, the causes, basically, of, of his actions, which at the end of the day are, of course, personal choice, but I also got to um, illustrate for him the full consequences and repercussions of his actions. And I think, and this is the simple, the simple way to tell you, why he chose to do what he did. And it was this notion, this heartbreaking notion, this outrageous notion that is still alive and well in today's society. And we need to be doing everything we can to uproot. And it was this notion that he had a right to my body. It was this sense of entitlement. It was this idea that because he was my boyfriend and we'd been out partying, um, the night would end in sex. So as opposed to having this violent or sadistic drive to do, do what he did, it was actually more of a super self-absorbed, self-centered, egotistical act that didn't really consider my well-being at all. So it was basically the absence of compassion or the absence of empathy, more so than actual cruelty. Mm. And I think that... I mean, yes, we've done amazing work and we've seen strides happening when it comes to the awareness of sexual consent. But I unfortunately think that those ideas that Tom illustrated are not unique to him. I unfortunately think that there's still people with this disillusion that if you're in a relationship, yeah. it's somehow consensual. You've somehow like signed this invisible agreement that the other person has a right to your body or vice versa. Someone commented that on my, or, or sent me on my Instagram story after I was sharing and, and tagging you during the trip uh, was, can you still call it rape if it's your boyfriend? And the answer to that is yes, you can still call it rape if it's your boyfriend. If you've not given actual active and genuine consent, then it is absolutely sexual assault and should always be treated as such, no matter the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And have you gone deeper into that with with Tom? Because I guess that's the, the interesting 
part of this or the part that we should be exploring because he was also so young what mm -hmm. in his life or his upbringing or you know in what way has society kind of how has he absorbed that that yeah your body was his right that evening mm -hmm. and he could do with it what he wanted where does that come from and how can we I guess that's where the change would would lie versus yeah let's not wear low-cut tops and short dresses anymore yeah, clearly exactly. that's not let's limit yeah. girls freedom to express themselves however they want which of course is bullshit mm. because this is not about how girls express themselves. This is about the ideas that um, brainwash boys into thinking that they have an entitlement and in any kind of sexual scenario. But to answer your question then, yes, we did tap a little bit into the social influences that shaped the mind of the 18-year-old boy that decided to rape me. Um, however, I'm always a bit hesitant to describe Tom's emotional state um, when he's not there to, to illustrate it himself. I will say this. Yes, he was indoctrined into a certain type of masculinity. He was um, active in sports where there is like an alpha male kind of attitude towards um, how you are as a sportsman, how you are as a lad. There's something called the lad culture in Australia that's very much modeled on a narrow type of masculinity. And unfortunately, so much of masculinity throughout the years has been harsh, has been restrictive, has been don't show your emotions, has been man up, has been your masculinity rests on your sexual conquests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. But it's, it's not, I think, breeding the type of emotionally intelligent boys that listen not only to the needs of their partners, but their own needs and their own hearts and their own conviction. So I think that if we really want to change this culture of violence that unfortunately is very prevalent, we need to start working on what makes a boy a boy, what makes a man a man, what makes a human being a human being, and erase these gender stereotypes that are holding us all back, that are dividing us and segregating us into this pink-blue apartheid um, that ultimately ends up separating children as opposed to uniting them from an early start into thinking that they are all worth the same. So I think that that's where I would like to focus my efforts and that's why I'm so happily strident in my belief that we can all do just that. We can all help dismantle those stereotypes. We can all partake in erasing the victim blaming that is taking place around us and always question those that say, what was she wearing? What was she drinking? What was she thinking? And say, wait a minute, why aren't you asking what was the perpetrator thinking? Because right. that's the person that holds the key. Something you said in your in your talk really stuck with me. The way we we also see these headlines in the media, mm -hmm. where it says you know women raped at a woman raped at a festival. It never says man raped woman at a festival. There's exactly. always that the perpetrator is totally unknown, not even mentioned. Like yes. it's some unknown force that came about, and now this woman, oh poor her, you know she happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or it's this was culture of invisibility, where the perpetrator not only escapes analysis, like he's not even mentioned, like he's a, a byline, when he should be the, the focal headline. point. He should be the focal point. Definitely. And again, I realize I'm I'm gendering this and talking about men mm. and he and this, but again, that is the 
most common scenario, a man um, committing sexual assault against a female victim. So let's just... Um, let's just call it what it is. Cut yes. the crap. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But um, you're so right. That's something that I feel is very important to illustrate. And if there's anyone working within any field of media listening to this, you hold um, the solution in your hands. You can definitely help us and partake in... in changing this culture by shifting that focus. It is ever so slight of a shift, but it's so deeply necessary and it would make the world of a difference so that we who've been subjected to violence don't end up becoming the entity that is scrutinized because that is what happens. Um, and that is also why it's so hard to speak up. I mean, for women that, exactly. <laughs> that suffer through this. One, what's the point? No one's going to get, you know, the mm -hmm. justice isn't really out there. Um, you mentioned also some interesting, really interesting to me statistics of how how big are the what's the likelihood of um, of justice in the court system happening in the Western world actually compared to a developing country? It's not that different. Actually, it's um, basically the same. Like if you go and press charges in my home country for uh, a sexual assault, the likelihood of you getting any type of justice are basically the same as for uh, an assault victim in Cambodia doing the same thing. So it just shows us that the universal trend is legal systems failing in, um, I guess, meeting out justice for for those that survive sexual assault. And it makes it another... harder and harder. So then exactly. there's less women speaking up, less women talking about it, less women you know, pressing charges. It just becomes this silent, silent thing that... Mm -hmm. And speaking of legal systems, uh, one of the more common questions I get is whether or not Tom served time for what he did to me. Yes. And both Tom and I felt that that would have been an appropriate thing to happen uh, once we had confronted the past and once we had started communicating about what it meant and the gravity of it. Then Tom said, you know, the natural place for me to be now would be to go to prison for this. However, at that point in time, the statute of limitations had passed. So that was never an option that was open to us. And I guess that makes us not an exception, but actually the rule. We are an example of the millions upon millions of people who fall through the cracks of the legal system. It's interesting just hearing you speak we. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, you and your perpetrator as a, as a we, because you guys have... You wrote a book together. <laughs> yes, we have collaborated on trying to shed some light and dismantle some stereotypes. Because after communicating position. for so many years, mm -hmm. how did you... How, yes, what happened What next? happened yes. from there? Well, to tell you the truth, uh, after eight years of writing, I thought, I don't want to keep this up. Um, I had prior prioritized my healing I had always put a stop to the correspondence whenever I didn't feel like it was serving my recovery, which meant that at times we were not communicating. But something propelled me back, and um, after eight years, I realized that, yes, I have now said everything I want to say, or more accurately, written everything I want to write. And I don't want to spend my life like corresponding about this, looking over Forever my shoulder. Ever, no, no, exactly. I don't want my past to dictate my future. I want to find a way to sever that tie so that I can enable myself to have basically a brighter future. And, um, I tried multiple times to just put a full stop and just like bid farewell in an email. And I realized that I couldn't. And after I'd sat with that feeling and really explored it, I realized that 
It didn't resonate with my heart to finish something off that had cut me to the bone and like marked my life so deeply. It just didn't fit to put the finishing um, chapter of that story in an email, you know, like after all, it's a very impersonal way to deal with something so deeply personal. And there's another aspect to this. After all, the written word is silent. And there's something incredibly empowering about giving voice and literally breaking your silence, literally speaking your truth. So whenever I, f I envisioned that in my head, my, my heart immediately responded with, yes, that is, that is the most dignified way that you can finish this chapter of your life and one that will resonate most deeply with your heart and your being. Because throughout this time, as you were hotmail corresponding. Um, <laughs> yes. What, what was your personal life? How was that? Were you able to find healing and, and, and um, also in your relationships on a level? Yes, you know? actually. Um, somewhere along the way, I managed to let go of, of this anger that had been so such a deep burden, such a, a heavy um, luggage that I was hauling with me wherever I went. And that opened up so much space Anyone who has been nurturing a very costly feeling, um, basically feeding this monster within, anyone who's, who's found a way to, to step out of that uh, will discover this miracle of like, oh my God, I have so much space. I have so much to, <laughs> to, to fill my, my inner self with. Like I can replace all this anger and bitterness with like, you know, hope and joy and mountain climbing and new hobbies and new friends. And um, so, yes, after, after having not only corresponded, corresponded for, for many years, but also had some excellent therapy, I was finding myself in a, in a balanced place and I was doing well at work. I had um, released a book that became one of the most award-winning books of 2009. Um, I had had a baby. I had, Side note, I had had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'd had my son, who is obviously the light of my life and apple of my eye. And um, that's, I guess, also why I wanted to find a way to once and for all address my past so that I could fully devote myself to the life that I had created. Mm. And um, so I asked Tom if he would meet up with me. To, to do just that once and for all, uh, see our past in the eye and put to, to rest all these haunting questions that had been uh, whirling around in our, in our heads for years. And his response was, he was terrified at first. I mean, literally facing up to the past is quite a daunting task when the past is as dark as, as what we're describing here. But after coming around to the idea, he realized that he himself needed this as well like he had in a way as well been a prisoner of his own silence and shame the difference being that my shame was wrongfully taken on because it was never my shame to begin with but his shame of course having a very reasonable cause but he wanted to find a way to I guess be a part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem um and he also felt that he owed it to me, I suppose, to, um, to give me the opportunity to speak some, some long-awaited words. 
face to face. So that's what we did. We met up in the middle because Iceland and, and Australia are opposite ends of the globe, as, as we said before. And um, I felt that neutral ground was the only option. So I literally found this tool called Radius on a Map. <laughs> it's online. <laughs> and I like entered Sydney and I entered Reykjavik and it like spat out Cape Town, South Africa. Oh, uh, it spat out four cities, but Cape Town is the one that we ended up picking. And yes, that's where we met in 2013. It was 16 years after the violent episode, after the Christmas dance. But what it was, was also... first meeting? Like? Right. This was so symbolic for me in many ways because it was not only halfway across the globe, it was halfway into my past. Mm -hmm. It was um, 16 years after I was 16. And um, I mean, overwhelming is the only word to, to describe what it was like to actually stand face to face after all that correspondence, all that pain, all that analysis, all that searing communication the exchanges that had me up in the middle of the night like crying over my keyboard on my computer and all the hopes that I had attached to this mm. so whirlwind what a brave thing to do it's just well I appreciate that I think it's a beautiful thing to say but for me it was it was a necessity and it was common sense it was the only thing that I felt would would fully liberate um a part of me. Hmm. However, I have to also make a disclaimer that this is by no means a methodology. I'm not preaching this as a formula. I'm absolutely not encouraging other survivors to get in touch with violent abusers or take any risks regarding their own safety. Um, I managed to do this because not only is the written format a really safe space, I was also literally on the other side of the planet when I started uh, any type of communication with Tom. And um, after eight years of writing, I had a fairly good idea of, of his character and of the regret and remorse that he carried for, for his actions. So I did not right, for a this second. This is not a cookie cutter way to healing. Exactly. Really not, but. but I did not for a second uh, fear that he would reoffend towards me or towards another human being. But yes, you're very right. Cookie cutter is as far away from, from this as it could potentially be. But for the week that we were in Cape Town, we basically exchanged life stories. And that's what became the book. It's called South of Forgiveness. Um, we basically talked our way through our lives because I realized that I had an inkling of who the 18-year-old boy was that did this to me. I dated him for weeks. I laughed with him. I cried with him. It was, it was a bond. But I had no idea who that person was that carried out this deed, nor the man that he had grown into being who had lived with this on his conscious. And I wanted to know what shaped that boy, what made him think he had a right to do this. So I felt violence doesn't happen in a vacuum. I need the story. I need to, I need a fuller understanding. So that's why I wanted to hear his life story, but I also wanted to tell him mine so that he could get the full picture of basically how his choices had impacted me. Also to further his understanding. So basically it was an exchange of, of stories and the hope that they could bring peace and um, a fuller understanding and hopefully put to rest some very painful um, notions that had shaped existence more than I care to admit, but 
I definitely felt it was time to, to move on from. And, um, and it became a book. It became a book. And I had God, I had conversations that are probably the highest of high that I've ever had, but also the lowest of low that I've ever had. I mean, I had conversations that leave you feeling skinned, you know, I mean, it was, there's vulnerability, but then there's this, it's, it was unprecedented. I had nobody's footsteps to follow in. So I, I had to make it up as we went along. And, um, for me, again, this is just a personal, um, discovery, but for me, the true healing was found in peeling back all the layers. And yes, it was painful, but it was necessary because beneath them, I discovered strength that I didn't think I had. And I also discovered that something so horribly destructive could actually be flipped into something constructive. And that's the hope that I stepped onto the TED stage with when, I, when we give our TED talk, is that if this would reach the ears of someone who suffered the way I did in silence and shame for years and years, if it, this could reach them and make them realize that not only was the shame never theirs, but also that there's hope after rape and that you can even find happiness, then my work would be done, basically. Mm. Well, not done, because obviously we, st we still have, have violence, yeah. yes, and we still have abuse happening everywhere, but if we could just... Um, free the people subjected to abuse from the immense burdens that that victim blaming, shaming, silence, and and um, feeling encaged by your experience. If we could just free them from that, then we would make such a tremendous stride forward. But at the end of the day the ultimate solution lies in shaping the minds of those that would potentially uh, commit violence. You are listening to From the Heart, Conversations with Yoga Girl. I want my body to feel good every single day. I know my yoga practice is essential for a feel-good body, and the food that I consume is just as important. It's not always easy to access and pair the freshest and healthiest ingredients, and sometimes the day is just too busy to resist a fast food drive-thru. Sunbasket makes it easier and much more convenient to commit to your health and wellness. With Sunbasket, it's super quick and easy to cook delicious, seasonal, healthy meals right in your own kitchen. You receive organic, non-GMO ingredients straight to your door, and the ingredients are pre-measured, Step-by-step instructions are a piece of cake to follow. Sunbasket offers specific dietary needs like lean and clean, paleo, gluten-free, and of course, vegetarian-friendly. Each order is created by award-winning chefs and approved by nutritionists. No more running around town for the best ingredients or endless online scrolling for recipes. In just 30 minutes, you'll be enjoying a delicious meal that your body will thank you for. Your new healthy lifestyle starts right now with Sunbasket. Go to sunbasket.com slash yoga today and get 50% off of your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash yoga to get 50% off your first order. sunbasket.com slash yoga. So for me, that answer lies in, in talking about it and educating each other and not shying away from the difficult conversations and teaching kids from a very young age to respect physical boundaries. And has, has Tom become sort of a, because just, I mean, writing the book together with you and mm -hmm. doing the TED talk together with you, he's kind of, he's living with a stamp now, of course, for the rest yes. of his life that he did this. Yes. Um, has he been able to become for young men out there a sort of 
to do the work in that sense? Well, I'll tell you this. I don't want to say inspiration to, to, right. you know, but if you see what I mean, to, to start that conversation from that end, because as women, we are not sitting in the minds of these young boys. We're shaping them maybe as mothers and, 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 and mm-hmm. this sort of thing, but to change society, That's it has to start of, in that conversation with exactly. the man. That's part of the reason why I thought that doing this together uh, had potential because let's face it, here I am like a, a white woman in my thirties. Like I am not going to appeal to very many young men around the world. However, there's a slightly higher chance that if a man like Tom steps forward and describes what it was like to be an 18 year old boy with a head full of misconceptions and entitlement, there's a slightly more chance, higher chance that that will reach the ears of those that need to hear it, that it will shape the minds of people that might potentially not think about consent or, um, or harbor notions of entitlement. And it might sway them and influence them to not make an abusive choice, mm. to not commit an act of violence. So that was definitely part of the reason why we thought that it was worth the try. But you're right, he will live with the stamp for the rest of his life. And he knew that. Um, whether or not he's become a role model for young men, I know that he would cringe just hearing mm-hmm. that because if there's anything he did not want, it was glamour or fame. Um, he did not want to be heralded for what he did. Uh, as a matter of fact, whenever there's been a book signing uh, on our tours, he's not signed any books. He's left that entirely up to me because he doesn't want to like give off signatures like he's some kind of right. example or role model that now can bask in the glory. Um, that is absolutely not the stance he it's wants to take. It's a very strange place to be. I mean, the, it is. What the two of you have created. It's it is very, a very strange place. For it's sure. unprecedented. Yeah, I, I would... We're the first in the world to attempt to do anything of this nature. And we've been met with a very wide range of reactions. But I am humbled to say that the overwhelming majority has been positive and supportive. And there's not a day that goes by where I don't get amazing messages from all corners of the world, from people that have found hope or healing in our story. And um, if they're out there and listening to this, I just want to tell you how strong you are, how brave you are, and how resilient you are, and that you are my inspiration every day. So beautiful. Um, I can imagine, I mean, I know you get a lot of comments and emails and a lot of huge response from women all over the world who found solace in your story and who found the courage to speak up after, you know, reading Mm -hmm. your book, going to your website, watching the TED Talk. Have you also heard stories from the other end, from other perpetrators that have come out, come out and kind of, that have owned their story and owned the the Much less, I must say. Much less because there's obviously, um, a stigma and a taboo around that end. And of course, you take a legal chance if you confess to a crime, um, unless the statute of limitations have passed the way they did for Tom and me. So there's like uh, a very visible deterrent that I guess explains why people are far less likely to speak up about that. However, yes, the answer is yes. I have received quite a few reactions from people that have overstepped a boundary. Uh, it may not necessarily be um, the, the the same type of assault that I endured, but definitely people that have that on their conscience to have um, not respected another person person's autonomy. And um, 
I think that if we don't hear from these people, if we don't hear their stories, however uncomfortable it might make us, however mad and furious and angry it might make us, I think we're not going to make meaningful progress in dismantling the toxic attitudes that drive their actions. I think that they provide the grounds from which we can start to have conversations. Like had Tom not uh, explained to me this uh, notion of toxic entitlement and um, this notion that he had a right to my body, then I would not be as well equipped to base my conversations about sexual consent on these very misconceptions. Because we can't erase misconceptions if we don't know what they are. So I will maintain that despite this controversial idea that perpetrators should not have a voice and should never be seen or heard, I will maintain uh, that on the opposite, on the contrary, we do need to hear their stories if we want to get to the core issue, to get to the bottom of why these crimes even happen in the first place. But we should not herald them. We should not applaud them for for speaking up. For, no. Because... Um, that's not, we should not be rewarding people for having committed abuse ultimately. But I think that it's a place where we have to speak about what it is in, in human communities that produces violence so often. And we can't do that if we're holding on to a monster myth and if we're refusing to see the humanity of those who actually commit violence. But that's a very controversial idea. Many people feel solace and comfort in the monster myth and... Uh, become completely enraged with the notion that it's actually a human being that committed this this crime. And because it makes the, of course, the, the wound cuts much deeper if it's someone that you trust and that you feel safe with. And Yes, and, um, and people like to distance themselves. Yes. They like to say, I have nothing in common with a beast or a monster that commits sexual assault. But if you say, no, 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 he's actually a human being like you, then you bring it that much closer and that... There are many people that would resist it and would not want to see that as a part of the equation. Mm. And I understand it, but I don't think it's effective, fortunately. For anybody that's um, listening right now that is is a survivor of sexual abuse and rape, since your story isn't a... I mean, I wish... How, how lovely would it be if there was a formula to follow, step one to ten of how to fully heal from a trauma like this, but... If you could offer some piece of advice for anyone listening who is sitting with this and maybe mm -hmm. found themselves in a place where they don't feel empowered to right. look for that place of healing or to speak up, what would you share Well, the with first them? thing I'd like to say to you who's listening and has an experience and, and maybe don't know how to start your healing journey, um, the first thing I want to say to you is nobody knows better than you. You are the expert in you. So there's no formula There's no right or wrong way to recover. The only way to recover is what feels safe and right for you right now. If you feel that it's safe and right for you to perhaps trust a friend or a counselor or a therapist or a family member with your story, if you have not done so already, then that could be a choice that could help you break the silence and make you realize that uh, you deserve to be heard Your, deserve, your story deserves to grow a pair of wings. Um, somebody once told me, whenever you tell your story, you're opening the cage and letting the bird out of it until you realize that you were the bird all along. 
So there's something I think really beautiful and healing about dialogue, about dialoguing with someone who can hold your pain and see you for what you are and listen to your truth. But make the choice wisely. Choose someone that you trust. Choose someone that is less likely to wound you with insensitive comments or, or any type of blaming. And know that you were not responsible for what happened to you. Know that you're not at fault. Tell yourself that. Tell yourself that as often as it takes for it to, to start slowly sinking in. And I know this is difficult. I know it can take a long time, but repeat it to you every day. It's like shampooing. Lather, rinse, and repeat mm. <laughs> over and over until at least a small part of you owns it, believes it, and lives it, that this was not your fault no matter what you did. Uh, there are excellent support measures all around the globe for people just like you. Um, if you go to my site, for example, on, or the southofforgiveness.com site, then you'll find support measures and you can just enter the place where you currently are at and it will show you results for support measures near you if that is something that resonates with your heart at the moment. And love yourself. That is... Um, such a simple truth that it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true that you did not deserve what happened to you. And by loving yourself, you're giving yourself back the gift that you were robbed of um, when you were violated. So know that you're precious and worthy and worth fighting for. And that's what I'm doing every day. I'm fighting for you and me and the rest of us and the daughters and the Leia Lunas of this world mm -hmm. so that hopefully one day we will have a world where there's less violence and more healing. Thank you for being such a light in this <laughs> world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If oh, there's anything I can Rachel, do to likewise. support you and this journey of shedding light in all the farthest corners of the world and, and the dark corners of our hearts and you're the Joan of Arc that we need so if there's anything I can do to support you on this journey please let me know I am forever forever in your tribe thank you Rachel that moves me very deeply I would love to hear what you think once you've gotten to the bottom of my story I've, I, I just laid a copy signed here for you with lots of little hearts mm. <laughs> Thank you so much. inside. So um, this is an invitation to you to come on a journey that changed my life. And I feel humbled to have you traveling with me into some very, really dark corners, but also some fantastically bright lights. And thank you as well for being one of those fantastically bright lights. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. My honor. Thank you so much to my guest, Tordis Elva. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to listen to and subscribe to other great episodes of From the Heart Conversations with Yoga Girl. You can find all of these on rachelbraithen.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you normally get your podcasts. And of course, please leave a review while you are there. Thanks to my sponsors, Daily Harvest, ZipRecruiter, Parachute, and Sunbasket. Please support them the way they support this podcast. I will see you all next week week.